This is Crime Beat, brought to you by Ad Taxi. Take your digital advertising to a higher level. With metrics that matter, Ad Taxi can boost your campaign performance, increase efficiency, and optimize your results. To learn more about our customized solutions, visit adtaxi.com. The following contains language that, while it may be completely appropriate for candid discussions of bank heists, car chases, penal codes, betrayal, firearms, lying, corruption in the Oval Office, love, and larceny, it may not be suitable for more delicate audiences. You're listening to Crime Beat, a behind-the-scenes podcast of fascinating true crime stories. This is Season 1, Stealing Nixon's Millions. Harry Barber met movie producer Anthony Mastromaro at an Italian restaurant near his home in Montclair. They were celebrating. Harry had just signed what is called a life rights agreement with Anthony for the story of his role in the biggest bank heist in the history of the United States. I was there too, toasting with wine over pasta dishes. Harry didn't say it at the time, but privately, he was worried what Hollywood would do to his story. He was pissed off at me for writing a screenplay that took some poetic license. Harry is always teetering on pissed off. Harry has always had the same opinion. The film should be made just as it happened in real life. He didn't want love story elements. He didn't want anything funny. He wanted crime and punishment. Straight to the point. So what's it going to be like to walk down the red carpet at the opening of a movie that's about you? It it hasn't registered yet. I would have preferred you left it as is. But if you want a comedy, so be it. I don't know what they got. You know, we discussed it when we when we met at that restaurant. Right. But I never dreamed that they were gonna Hollywood it. Here's the thing I've learned about making a movie. Everybody wants it done their way. The producers want it done their way, and the director, and I want it done the way I want it done. And Harry says it's all bullshit if it's not done just the way he says it should be done. But somehow it all gets done. And when it all comes out in the end, it's the greatest feeling in the world. My name is Keith Sharon. I'm a reporter for the Southern California News Group based in Orange County. In 2003, I wrote a 10-part series for the Orange County Register about the biggest bank heist in the history of the United States when seven guys from Youngstown tried to steal $30 million from President Nixon. Then I wrote a screenplay based on the same material. I have been obsessed with this burglary for almost 20 years. The first time I met movie producer Anthony Mastromaro, I told him that if he ever got my screenplay made into a movie, I'd buy him a beer. So in April, 15 years after my series about the bank heist appeared in the Orange County Register, I met with Anthony and director Mark Stephen Johnson, Finding Steve McQueen was shot, edited, scored, and finished, and I bought beer. What you're about to hear is me presenting a six-pack each to Anthony and Mark. Anthony, I told you years ago that I would buy you a beer, and so I got 
Trestles okay. from San Clemente, which is just a few miles from the United California Bank. Awesome. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I couldn't leave you uh, with nothing, so I got you Left Coast Brewing right down the street. Awesome. So, Some hop juice. There you I go. Love it. Thank you. <laughs> uh, when I'm drinking again, which will be around Labor Day weekend, a Memorial Day weekend, I should say, I'll uh, pop those open and I'll, uh, I'll celebrate with those beers and say this is the... This is to Finding Steve McQueen. This is to, uh, to Harry Barber. It sounds like so much fun. You write a screenplay, and everybody gets beer. Let me just tell you right now, for the record, making a movie is the most thrilling and soul-crushing experience a writer can possibly have. It has been 15 years since I started writing this screenplay. There would be times I was sure this movie would get made. Then I would be crushed. Then I would be crushed again. Then I was asked to step away from the film. And then, just when I thought I couldn't be crushed anymore, I would be crushed again. The whole process would make me wonder how any movie ever gets made. Let's start at the beginning of the movie-making process, long before Anthony was involved. It must have been May or June of 2003. I'm sitting at my desk at the register, and I get this phone call. The person on the other end says, Daniel Stern would like to speak with me. Daniel Stern? What? Wait, why does that name sound so familiar? Holy shit, I know that name. He was the tall bad guy in Home Alone. He was in City Slickers and Diner. He was the narrator's voice in The Wonder Years. He gets on the phone, and I recognize his voice immediately. Anybody would recognize Daniel Stern's voice. Here's the funny thing. He called himself Danny. He wants me to call him Danny. I say, okay, Danny. He says he grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, and he's always been obsessed with the Watergate scandal. I quickly look up his Internet Movie Database page, and he was, indeed, born in Bethesda, Maryland, just outside D.C. He wants to talk to me about the Nixon bank high story. He's thinking about making the story into a movie, a movie he would like to direct. I tell him it just so happens that when I'm not being a newspaper reporter, I'm a screenwriter. And it just so happens I'm almost finished with a screenplay based on that newspaper series. That's great, he says. But he doesn't want to talk on the phone. He wants to meet. Okay, where do you want to meet? That's when Danny Stern invites me to come to his house. So I drive out to Malibu. If you know L.A., Malibu is about 12 hours from everywhere. I find his street, and I make a left. It's a cul-de-sac. I've got to stop here, because a cul-de-sac in Danny Stern's neighborhood in Malibu is not like a regular cul-de-sac. On Danny Stern's cul-de-sac, you can't see any of the houses, because there are giant white walls blocking the view from the curb. So I park my car, which was a dirty green Ford Expedition, with kids' baseball equipment hanging out the back. I see an intercom box, so I push the button. Hello? I have an appointment to see Danny Stern. A woman's voice on the other end says something back to me in Spanish, and suddenly the giant white walls start to swing open. I leave my car on the street, and I walk inside the yard. The gates close behind me. Then I hear the dogs. Several loud and horrifying dogs come bounding out of the house, with a little housekeeper chasing them. It's okay, it's okay, she's screaming. I stand there frozen. The dogs surround me and decide to let me live. 
The housekeeper motions for me to come inside. I enter through the kitchen. She points to a bench a couple of paces from the sink. I sit there and wait. The kitchen has a cowboy feel, with a long wooden table that you might see in a ranch. A steer skull with long horns hang over the table. Of course, he was in city slickers. I'm thinking to myself, Danny Stern must like the cowboy ethos. So I'm sitting there in the cowboy kitchen, waiting. And waiting. And waiting. I'm guessing 25 minutes has gone by. Housekeepers are cleaning the kitchen all around me. Then I see a man. He's wearing a robe, hair disheveled. He walks toward me. What's up, he says. I've got an appointment to see Danny Stern. And then he says to me, he's my next door neighbor. When I finally made it into Danny Stern's house, he's cracking up. He says I'm lucky I didn't hit the other intercom button because his neighbor on the other side is Barbara Streisand. She would have had you killed, he said. Danny Stern was a nice guy. After a couple of trips to his house to discuss the script, he decided he didn't want to go forward. I got a call one day saying he was no longer interested. In Hollywood, that's called a pass. Danny Stern thought about it and passed. If you don't like something, you pass. It's kind of a nice way of stabbing someone in the heart. I had been stabbed in the heart before, so many times. A little background on me. My first screenplay was called Born and Raised, a true story about two guys from Hoboken, New Jersey, who killed each other's wives. That screenplay got to the brink of a green light in the late 1990s. Director Gary Fleeter was attached. That's what it's called when someone else joins up with you to make your movie. Attached. Gary Fleeter had directed Kiss the Girls with Ashley Judd and Morgan Freeman. My screenplay had also attracted the attention of New Regency Films. Blockbuster producer Arnon Milchan was in line to oversee it. But the deal fell through at the last second. That screenplay has attracted a lot of attention over the last 20 years. But after that initial deal fell apart, it has never gone anywhere. One producer who read Born and Raised was Jorge Saralegui. He had an idea for a movie, a comedy about two cops who do a reality television show called Showtime. He hired me to write that screenplay, which I did. Then he hired about seven other people to rewrite that screenplay. He got that movie based on my original screenplay made by Warner Brothers. Here's another note about my time working on the Showtime script. Sarah Leggy had a production executive. I think that was her title. I really hope I'm getting that right. You don't want to get a title wrong in Hollywood. I worked with a production executive named Channing Dungey. She was great. I had lunch with her several times as I worked on the script. I remember once she and I drove to a sandwich shop in North Hollywood to pick up lunch for an all-day meeting. Channing Dungey is now the vice president at Netflix in charge of original content. She took that job after she was the president of ABC Entertainment Group. I wonder if she would return my phone call. On Showtime, I got shared screenplay credit. My name appeared on the big screen and the movie poster. I was on top of the world. I quit my job as a newspaper reporter only to come back crawling to the register three years later. 
I wrote several screenplays over the years while I was a full-time newspaper reporter. A couple of them were optioned, none got made. And then this bank heist story happened. I started writing furiously. I called the script, Hail to the Thief, and then I changed it to the Youngstown Boys. If you've been following this podcast, you know we've been counting down the best bank heist movies of all time. Number 12 was Point Break. Number 11, Set It Off. Number 10, The Bank Job. Number 9, The Town. Number 8, Bonnie and Clyde. Number 7, Dog Day Afternoon. Number 6, Heat. Number 5, Baby Driver. Number 4, Inside Man. Number 3, Hell or High Water. Number 2 on the list is Out of Sight with George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez. You could argue that this is Clooney's best movie. He's got chemistry with J-Lo that makes you wonder why there never was Out of Sight 2. The movie is full of great performances. Listen to this cast. Ving Rhames, Don Cheadle, Dennis Farina, Nancy Allen, Steve Zahn, Catherine Keener, and Albert Brooks. The dialogue is spectacular. Legend has it that writer Elmore Leonard got the idea for his book, which is also called Out of Sight, when he saw a picture of a beautiful female federal marshal holding a shotgun in the Detroit News. And now, drum roll please, number one. The best bank heist movie of all time is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. How could it not be? William Goldman wrote the screenplay. He's also the guy who wrote All the President's Men, Marathon Man, The Great Waldo Pepper, Misery, and The Princess Bride. I could watch Paul Newman and Robert Redford banter with William Goldman dialogue for hours. They are nice guy thieves who don't know how to do anything else but pull heists. Rest in peace, William Goldman. He died in November. Sometimes, for inspiration, I watch the first five minutes of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid to remind myself what good writing looks like. Here's what you might not know about that movie. Paul Newman wasn't the first choice to play Butch Cassidy. The actor the studio wanted? Steve McQueen. That is the absolute truth. It all comes full circle. In August of 2003, I was asked to appear on a television show called Masterminds, where they featured the most ingenious criminals. The story of Emil Dinzio was perfect for that show. They interviewed me at my house in Rancho Santa Margarita. They filmed me walking outside what used to be the United California Bank in Monarch Bay Plaza. I still had reddish hair 15 years ago. The important thing about that television show is that it was seen by Hollywood producer Anthony Mastermaro. My friend uh, back east, my buddy George Palermo, called me and said, um, dude, I'm watching this thing. I think it was on True TV or something like that. Um, he's like, about this heist, these guys in California, you should, uh, it's on blah, 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 it's on you know, True TV. And I, so I turned on the TV and I caught like the last maybe five to seven minutes of it. And the only name that I, that they, that I, that registered for me was um, uh, Emil Dinzio. And uh, so I immediately did a Google search and I found, uh, that's when I came across your 10-part series. Uh, read that and then, you know, your email address was there and shot you an email. 
What was it about it? Well, look, I, I mean, I, you know, I'm a fan of, of heist films. I'm, uh, I thought the story was really, especially, you know, I only caught, as I mentioned, the last five or seven minutes of the um, the episode on True TV. But one of the things I recall it saying that they were uh, they were robbing the president of the United States, and I was like, "What?" And so when I read your article, um, I or you know your ten part story. Um, I thought that that was really fascinating. Here's a, a, a bunch of guys from, you know, it's kind of like a fish out of water story where a bunch of guys from Youngstown, Ohio, um, who were, you know, most of which, or at least the leader was, you know, of uh, Italian descent, um, was about to rip off or felt like he was, you know, had information to, to, you know, steal from the president of the United States because he hated him so much. And, um, um, and I just thought that that angle was really, really interesting. And, and the other thing about the article that I, that, that struck me is that I liked that it was told through kind of the eyes of Harry. Anthony was a former Wall Street guy who came to Southern California to make it in the movies. He had appeared as an actor in the movie Joe Dirt and again on the series Entourage. Anthony and I soon discovered we had a lot in common. Our birthdays are on the same day, August 27th. Anthony was born in Hoboken, New Jersey. My wife and I moved to Hoboken in 1989 and lived there for five years. Hell, Anthony and I probably shared the counter at the Malibu Diner on 14th Street in Hoboken. You know that screenplay I told you about, Born and Raised, the one I wrote that never got made? That was set in Hoboken, New Jersey. Anthony's first foray into producing feature films was Beer League with Artie Lang of Howard Stern Show fame. Anthony paid an option for my screenplay, and he bought the life rights of Harry Barber. Harry's picture appears at the end of Finding Steve McQueen, but because he's Harry, he's bracing himself for what the film has become. When you're involved in the story, here's the thing you have to get your head around. It's not a documentary. Some things are slightly different than real life. Some things are vastly different than real life. Some things are blatantly false, made up out of whole cloth. I must have rewritten that script 50 times, trying to use as much of the true story as possible, and at the same time, trying to make it dramatic and funny and a love story and exciting all at the same time. I worked on that screenplay for years, I got excited when Anthony called me one day to announce we had a director attached. And now a couple of words about other things we do here at the Southern California News Group. At the Orange County Register, we'll keep City Hall honest, corporations accountable, and report on local sports, events, and issues in your community accurately and objectively. And that's worth paying for. To subscribe, call 1-877-469-6133. That's 1-877-469-6133. I went to lunch with Anthony and director James Foley. I was talking fast. I probably spoke with food in my mouth. James Foley had made his name in the entertainment business by directing Madonna's music video, Dress You Up, and Papa Don't Preach. On the strength of his MTV cred, 
he got hired to make a feature film called At Close Range with Sean Penn, Christopher Walken, and Mary Stuart Masterson. And he directed Glengarry Glen Ross with Alec Baldwin, Jack Lemmon, Al Pacino, and some incredible dialogue by writer David Mamet. James Foley, however, couldn't get our movie made. Then there was director Erickson Kaur. When Foley dropped out, Kaur became attached. He had directed Invincible, the football movie with Mark Wahlberg. Kaur couldn't get our movie made. When Kaur dropped out, there was director Adrian Grunberg. He had directed Get the Gringo with Mel Gibson. Grunberg couldn't get our movie made. There was a rumor some years back that Tom Hanks was interested in playing Emil Dimzio, the criminal mastermind who tried to pull off the biggest bank heist of all time. I don't know if there ever was any truth to that. Tom Hanks could get our movie made, but Tom Hanks never committed to our movie. Years went by, and directors went by. I had rewritten the script so many times, I was done, emotionally and creatively spent. I chalked it up as a nice try. It almost worked, but not this time. I thought it was over. As you can tell, Anthony Mastromaro is becoming the hero of this movie-making story. He kept working behind the scenes to keep the movie alive, but it wasn't always easy. I think it was 2010 or 2011, Anthony had an uncomfortable conversation with me. He wanted the script to be rewritten again, this time by someone else. Maybe a new writer could inject some life into a script that wasn't going anywhere. To me, the chances of getting a movie made at that point seemed so remote. I agreed to step aside. People ask me what it feels like to be replaced on a movie. Take the part of your body where the most nerve endings are, maybe the bottom of your foot, or maybe the spot underneath your fingernails, and jab those with a hot knife. It feels like heart surgery without anesthesia. Let me think about that for a second. I guess it's like a professional athlete getting cut from a team that the athlete created. It's fucking horrible. Anthony hired screenwriter Ken Hickson to come in and see if he could take the same story and get it made. Ken had written Inventing the Abbots, Welcome to the Rileys, and City by the Sea. Ken's a great guy, and he was very nice in an uncomfortable situation. Ken and I had dinner at the ESPN Zone in Anaheim to discuss the characters and the real story. Ken is the one who came up with the title, Finding Steve McQueen, based on that little detail I found about Harry having a Steve McQueen poster when he was a young man. Ken Hickson did a great job rewriting the script. As the calendar passed, 2012, 2013, 2014, director Mark Steven Johnson came aboard. Mark wrote Grumpy Old Men in 1993 and Grumpier Old Men in 1995. In 1998, he made his directorial debut with Simon Birch, based on the John Irving novel A Prayer for Owen Meany. Mark got our movie made. He said the story grabbed him right away. For me, it was two things. It was, um, one was the love story. Um, when you meet Harry and he sits in a diner at the beginning of the movie and says, I have something to tell you, and the story's told in flashbacks, uh, that really grabbed me. Um, and and uh, putting the pieces of that puzzle together I thought was really fascinating and had a lot of heart to it, had a lot of humor to it, um, which I added more to. 
Um, and the other thing was the actual, I'm not super into heists like Anthony was, um, but this heist I'd never seen before. I'd never seen a heist where people break in not once, but three nights in a row. Right. Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. I'd never seen that before. I thought that was so ballsy and so incredible. Um, uh, so that really grabbed me. And this idea that somebody would hate Nixon so much that they want to go rip off the president of the United States. It's just such a bold idea. And I love stories about people that are in way over their heads. You know, as good as they are, and they were the best, um, they still, it was a really, really bold move. The story didn't get a green light until two things happened. Travis Fimmel signed to play Harry Barber, and Forrest Whitaker took the role as the lead detective in the case. Fimmel is known for playing Ragnar on the History Channel series Vikings. Whitaker has made a million movies, including Black Panther and one of my favorites, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He won the Academy Award for Best Actor in The Last King of Scotland. Certainly when Forrest Whitaker said yes, that, that, I think that gave everybody a, self, a, a sense of like, okay, we got like a, a really legitimate, you know, movie star, you know, Academy Award winning, Oscar winning actor um, to come on board and play this really interesting role um, and uh, but but the truth be told I think when we got Travis on board uh, Travis Fimmel who, who plays the, the the role of Harry Barber um, Mark and I felt really confident that we would get the movie made the rest of the cast is amazing Rachel Taylor who's in the Netflix hit Jessica Jones plays Harry's love interest William Fitchner who not only was in The Dark Knight and Heat from our list of the best bank heist movies of all time, he plays the mastermind of the crime. Louis Lombardi, who was Edgar on 24, is in the cast with Reese Cairo and Jake Weary. Lily Rabe from American Horror Story plays an FBI agent. I've learned recently that Lily Rabe has a great group of fans on Twitter. They shot the movie in the little town of Dallas, Georgia in the summer of 2017, Mark Stephen Johnson reminded me that Dallas, Georgia, had to serve as Laguna Niguel and Washington, D.C., and Youngstown, Ohio, and the little town in Pennsylvania where Harry escaped. He said they bought one single palm tree and used it in the background of some of the Laguna Niguel scenes. And there was a surfboard in the back seat of a car. Anthony gave me periodic updates over the years about how the film was progressing. What he didn't tell me was that because Steve McQueen's name had been added to the title, the producers had to pay for the right to use it, and they had to get permission from McQueen's family. It all worked out in the end. So why was Steve McQueen so cool? He always struck me, when you watch all of his movies, as truly, like, everybody acts this way, but most people really do care. I don't think he gave a shit. You know what I mean? Quite frankly, I really don't think he cared what anyone else thought. You know, he did what he wanted. And you can see it. You can see it in all his movies, certainly. You can see it on Bullet, but you can see it in everything. He was, just, he was his own man. He was a man's man. You know what I mean? He was, he was that guy. The guy you saw on screen was the guy who he really was. You know, and I think that um, he threw caution to the wind, and he was brave and not afraid to, you know, be a man and and, um, and 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 do what he wanted the way he wanted and I think he lived his life the way he wanted and I'm sure that he would have loved to have had more years on this earth but at the same time I I, I bet that he felt like he lived a full life every every day that that he was alive 
Um, Travis and McQueen have something in common to me in that um, they both, I think acting for both of them was secondary. I think they're both a little, uh, I don't want to say embarrassed, but they're not necessarily like, you know, dying to be actors. You know, they, they both did it because they're so attractive and they're so naturally talented and whatnot. But when you said cut to Steve McQueen on set, he'd jump on his motorcycle and go off, or he wanted to be racing cars, and yeah. Travis wants to be in his ranch, or, he, you know, he wants to, just like, they both kind of got into acting almost yeah. sideways, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. They didn't see, I, I know Travis doesn't, and I think McQueen was the same way. In fact, I know he was from what I've read. They didn't see it as real man's work, you know what I mean? And I thought you always felt that. Like, that's what I mean by didn't give a shit. You know, there's this attitude, you know, which, uh, which I, I love. We had to reach out to the estate. I mean, um, you know, we had to license any anything that had his name on it. The bill, the uh, the posters from Bullet, um, using his name, and usually they charge a lot of money to use his name, his likeness, and um, you know the family found it to be incredibly charming. Did you speak to uh, to Chad, Chad his, yeah. his son Chad? I, I wrote the family a letter, and then I got on the phone with Chad to explain what a fan I was of his father's. Uh, and how much it meant to me to try to, what I wanted to do is turn on a whole new generation to how cool Steve McQueen was. Um, and he got it. He was just like, that sounds awesome, Mark. He's like, yeah, you guys, whatever you need, whatever you need. Finding Steve McQueen premiered in Monaco. Anthony, Mark, Travis, and co-star Rachel Taylor, who plays his love interest, flew to Europe to be there on the red carpet. I got to see the film with a test audience in Pasadena. I won't give anything away. But Harry Barber's picture, the real Harry Barber, is the last image the audience sees before the final credits roll. When I started putting together this podcast, Finding Steve McQueen was a done deal. The movie was finished. I had seen it. The test audience loved it. The producers had an agreement with Open Road Films, a distribution company that planned to release Finding Steve McQueen in 1,500 theaters across America. That's when disaster struck. A Chinese company called Tang Media Partners bought Open Road Films. They said their goal was to rebrand the company. Open Road CEO Tom Ortenberg left the company, and the deal to distribute Finding Steve McQueen fell apart. Suddenly, the roller coaster was going down again. But then, do you sense the excitement in my voice? On December 14th, at 1.04 p.m., I got a Facebook message from Anthony Mastermaro. We sold the movie, E1. That's all it said. E1 is Entertainment One, a company based in Canada. They had bought the distribution rights to our movie. E1 saved the day. I pumped my fist in the air like Judd Nelson at the end of The Breakfast Club. A few more details. E1 owns a company called Momentum Pictures, and they will be the distributor of Finding Steve McQueen. Momentum has recently released a film called Asher, starring Ron Perlman, and director Reed Moreno's I Think We're Alone Now, starring Peter Dinklage and Elle Fanning, and Mom and Dad, starring Nicolas Cage and Selma Blair. On March 15th, Finding Steve McQueen will open in 10 theaters across America and on streaming services and pay-per-view. That's the way many films are released these days, with a heavy emphasis on television. You can watch it on demand on most services you get in your home. DirecTV, Comcast, Dish, Time Warner. It's on all of those and iTunes and Google Play and others. If you've listened to this entire podcast, you've heard me say that when my first movie Showtime opened in 2002, 
I had the dream of having that experience again. The opening date for Showtime was March 15th. The opening date for Finding Steve McQueen is March 15th. What did Shakespeare say about the Ides of March? That was March 15th, the day Julius Caesar was assassinated. Shakespeare said, beware the Ides of March. The Bard was wrong. I wish every day could be March 15th. After all these years, I think a lot about Harry and Emil and the rest of the crew. I wonder if there are parallels between bank heists and getting a movie made. You've got this big idea, you work out every detail, you plot and you plan a beginning, a middle, and an ending. But getting that money is so hard. Your wildest dreams will be fulfilled if, somehow, you can get inside that bank. Or in Hollywood, if you can tap into some funding source. And then, even when you get the money, and every detail you laid out works like a charm, and you think you have it all pulled off, it can still fall apart. But if it all works, it feels like Harry and Emil must have felt when they walked out of that bank with all that cash. Don't get me wrong, it's not about the paycheck. In Hollywood, when your movie gets funded and shot and edited and scored and released, the real thrill is that other people get to see your work. Your dream is unleashed into the world. Today, Harry lives alone in the same trailer where I found him in 2002. He says he wants to go back to Brookville someday to say hello to the people who last saw him when he was John Baker. He knows money from the bank is still out there. Sometimes, like when you're trying to get a movie made, the wait is worth it. Next time on Crime Beat Season 1, Stealing Nixon's Millions, Glory Days. I talk with actress Rachel Taylor and director Mark Steven Johnson about what it's like to turn the biggest bank heist in U.S. history into a movie. And Rachel Taylor uses some salty language. The best way you can support this podcast is to give us high ratings and reviews and tell your friends to check out our work. Thanks for listening. Crime Beat Season 1 was produced by the Southern California News Group. The executive editor was Frank Pine. The senior editor was Todd Harmonson. Production and original music by Michael Crow. Sound editing by Jeff Gritchen. Graphics by Kurt Snibby. And I want to give special thanks to podcasters who inspired this work. Amy Wilson and Amber Hunt on Accused. Sarah Koenig on Serial. Brian Reed on S-Town. Chris Gofford on Dirty John. Madeline Barron on In the Dark. Nate DeMeo on The Memory Palace, and Phoebe Judge on Criminal. <laughs>